So the title of this uh, third and uh, final talk um, on this retreat is taken from a line in the uh, four quartets of T.S. Eliot. We had the experience but missed the meaning. Yesterday evening when Martine was <clears throat> sitting here talking to you, I walked into the village of Denbury and uh, perchanced upon a tavern called the Union Inn, where I stopped briefly for refreshments <laughs> in the interests of full disclosure. <laughs> and um, I noticed that behind the bar there was a, a sign that read, the answer is beer, but I can't remember the question. <laughs> and um, I suspect I read that from a um, perspective um, much informed by what we've been doing here this week. We've been exploring the question and Perhaps we've come up with an answer or perhaps not. But it's certainly perhaps been something we haven't been emphasizing. The importance is the question. Now, although it's, it's amusing in a laddish sort of way, um, if you think about it, um, it's actually saying something quite poignant, if not tragic, about human beings. If we substitute the word beer with fear, the answer is fear, but I can't remember the question. The answer is greed or attachment or selfishness, but I can't remember the question. And I think in many ways it points to how much um, of our time is spent um, somehow convinced that what we're doing is the right answer to the situation at hand. And yet, perhaps for much of the time, we're simply living according to the imperatives of conditioning and habit. It seems that being frightened or being attached uh, or feeling one way or another is the appropriate answer in that situation. But we're often uh, reacting um, with a very dim sense of what it is that prompted us to behave in that way in the first place. We kind of miss the question. The question, in a sense, is almost not relevant. But we're quite confident that what we're doing is somehow right. Or good. Or at least in my own interest. So what we've been doing in some ways this week is, is inverting um, that, that pattern of behavior. Um, noticing how readily we come up 
with answers or a sense of this being the right thing to do. And instead, constantly turning attention back on the source of our behavior, of our lives, um, to ponder the question that lies at the root of all of our actions in, in some sense. Um, namely, you know, what is this? What do I do? How do I live? What is this runs the risk of sounding like a, an ontological question, in other words, a question about what is the nature of being in philosophy? What is this? But perhaps in a, another way of, of spinning that question would be to ask, what do I do? In other words, letting it be more of an ethical question. And I spoke the other night of how it seems that Buddhism uh, moved from a primarily ethical concern, what do I do, how do I live, to metaphysical concerns, what is the nature of truth, what is real, what is the ultimate reality. So in some ways I feel um, this questioning is an ethical question. You know, what do I do? And this is, I think, perhaps more pertinent uh, when we leave the retreat. When we, tomorrow or the next day, whenever it might be, that we get on a bus or a train or a car and we go back to our, our daily lives. The question that may really be um, most uh, important in many of the situations we find ourselves is not what is this, but what do I do? And I wonder if we could also start to treat that question in a more contemplative way, instead of uh, simply acting or thinking or saying something that just seems the most natural and convenient and comfortable way of responding to uh, a situation, the suffering of another person, say, or a problem at work. You know, what do I do? What do I say? And I think this leads us also into a reflection on what Buddhism talks quite a lot about, and that is this idea of conditioned arising, or conditionality, or conditioning. There seems to be a recognition that much of our lives, much of what we do, um, is driven by the force of habit, by the force of, uh, of social conditioning, maybe religious conditioning, economic conditioning, psychological conditioning, uh, patterns of behavior that have become so familiar and so ingrained in us that that just seems like, you know, the way to do things. But very often we find that these repeated behaviors have a kickback that leads us to regret having made that choice or said that thing. And this, I think, brings us back into a 
a contemplation on the forces within us that drive us to act. And I feel that contemplation, or son, or zen, or chan, or whatever we call it, contemplation uh, is very much um, uh, learning to think more carefully, to attend more closely to the power of habitual behavior that um, causes us to act semi-consciously, perhaps even unconsciously at times. So as an ethical practice, uh, maybe pause more before saying or doing something and allow the question to, to percolate down, but what do I do? You know, in the cut and thrust of daily interactions, we possibly don't have that luxury when dealing with a recalcitrant child or whatever. But in many of the other areas of our lives, the bigger questions perhaps about our relationship to the, the climate, our relationship to um, injustice in some form or another, there is no ready answer. I think, to many of these big questions. Um, and yet it's very convenient and comforting just to opt for the position taken, say, by your, the editor of your newspaper or whatever it might be, or your close friends or people you admire, rather than taking the trouble to ask yourself in a more reflective way, what do I do? How do I act? So if we come back to the line of Eliot, we had the experience, but missed the meaning. We've had a lot of experience on this retreat, and often in circles uh, that, of people interested in meditation and so on, experience is often raised up to a very important position. It's all about experience. We're not concerned with theory or um, concepts uh, or books. And Zen, of course, is very big on this. You know, get rid of books, burn books, throw out the Buddha images. What matters is experience. And there's a kind of mystique very often around the word experience as though it's a sort of holy grail. If we can have the experience, then we've somehow, we have enough. That's adequate. But I feel that's a very, um, uh, that's a very partial view. I do feel that um, uh, gaining a first-hand experience of what these spiritual traditions talk about in terms of insight or enlightenment, I do think that's very important. If it rests purely at the level of ideas and concepts, it's unlikely to really have much uh, significant impact on how we live. But at the same time, if we discard the, the, uh, the frameworks of meaning, and I'll come back to that in a minute, um, and somehow reduce everything just to pure experience, I think we 
in a sense, just slip over into the other extreme. Yeah, pure experience, but perhaps we haven't really uh, understood what it means, what its significance is. I'm reminded of um, a story I heard from a, a colleague of mine who spent um, a number of months in the um, meditation center in Rangoon in Burma, which was founded by Mahasi Sayadaw. And much of the Vipassana tradition that we find here in Gaia House and at other centers in, in Barry and Spirit Rock and our other uh, you know, related communities are primarily drawn from the um, tradition of Mahasi Sayadaw. And what Mahasi did um, was develop um, a very structured program of um, insight meditation and evolved a theory of different stages and levels of insight. And it's been for many decades now a major practice center, not only for Burmese, but also for, for many Westerners as well. Anyway, my friend uh, Fred was uh, staying in this uh, center and doing you know, lots of practice, meditation, sitting long hours. And um, one day, um, a young Australian couple showed up. And the, um, the man was a very keen uh, meditator and wanted to spend time at this center in order to deepen his practice and so on. His girlfriend would have much rather gone to a beach, but out of some sense of um, whatever, uh, she decided that uh, um, this wasn't really kind of her thing, but uh, yeah, well, okay, we'll give it a go. Now what happened was that um, the girlfriend turned out to be a natural, someone who um, quite easily entered into all of these stages of insight and got into very deep meditative states. And um, my friend uh, Fred um, found this uh, both impressive and a little bit um, a little bit undermining because he had spent <laughs> all of this time not really making as much progress as this young woman. Anyway, at the end of a month or however long this couple stayed, uh, they then uh, took their leave of the others in the center and um, uh, Fred was interested in, in what, this, uh, you know, what this young woman had made of all of this. And she just shrugged and said, yeah, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> but it didn't really mean much to her. Um, she had had the experiences, that seemed to be quite clear, but they held no great meaning. And um, whether or not she would do these things again, she had no real idea. And that story has always, um, has always stayed with me, and I thought about it quite a lot. And what it seems to show is that the experience in and of itself 
is not actually meaningful. That the meaning, as it were, does not reside in the experience, but in the context or the framework within which you interpret it, in which it operates within, say, a value system. So if, like my friend, and maybe the young Australian man, you had taken on board, let's say, a broadly Buddhist view of the world, and you, and you felt that that resonated with you and gave you a, a sense of purpose and, and, and structure in your life, an ethical, a philosophical, a contemplative uh, framework, then these stages of insight could be deeply meaningful. They would have a context. But without that context, there's no assurance, depending on where you're coming from, as it were, that such experiences in and of themselves uh, will have much meaning. I think at times um, when we're on a retreat like this, or sometimes just in the course of our, our daily practice, our daily meditations, we might find at times that the, the enthusiasm or even the interest in what we're doing begins to fade. We find ourselves feeling a bit restless, a bit bored. And it's as though the, um, the juice of the meditation has somehow run out and we feel a bit adrift. Perhaps we even experience that rather uncomfortable uh, uh, feel of, 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 of meaninglessness. What does this really mean? You know, I think at such times, um, rather than just gritting your teeth and just pushing on, as it were, although that's certainly one way to deal with it, I find it helpful, and I think others have found it helpful, to actually stop doing whatever exercise you were doing and just sit there and ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why do I sit? Why do I meditate? Much in the same way that we've been asking this question, what is this? Here we're focusing on a rather more specific issue at hand. In other words, my lack of motivation, my feeling bored. But I think the same basic principle applies. That at times of, uh, of like these, um, come back to the question. The question that in some ways you've forgotten. The answer is meditation, but I can't remember the question. <laughs> because so often our meditation does become routinized. It becomes a routine. It becomes a habit. It becomes something that our circle of Buddhist friends kind of assume you do. Uh, there's a whole range of, of reasons, psychological, social, who knows what, that make you feel a certain obligation to sit or practice in some way even though deep down you may not really feel like it. 
And at those times, I think what happens is we lose touch with the sources of our own inspiration. And I think religions are actually quite good at um, achieving this. We feel the, the, you know, the, the conviction and the certainty and the consolation of belonging to a, a Buddhist or a Christian or a Jewish community. Um, and we feel a bit you know, satisfied about that and proud perhaps, but also a bit complacent. And I think at times, it is important to uh, seek to recover what inspired us in the first place. Because often what is most real, viscerally, in, our, in, in, in the practice of our path, uh, are those rather uncomfortable and urgent questions that sometimes spring up unbidden, or are present in an encounter, say, with death, or or sickness, or, or age. And it's useful, I feel, to somehow come back to that. And maybe to spend a, a morning, or maybe a bit of each day, if you find it helpful, and just sit with the question, you know, why am I doing this? Not, you know, as a, as a precursor to then saying, because I want to get enlightened for the sake of all sentient beings, which is the standard Buddhist shtick, but really getting back to, you know, your own, your own life, your own deepest questions and needs, and sit with that without expecting some answer, not being, uh, being somewhat... Um, suspicious of the ready-made answers that pop up into your mind, but rather trying to tap down deep into what moves you to do this kind of thing. So this is one way, perhaps, where we can... Uh, we can stay connected with the source of meaning so that experiences that we undergo, they could be shattering moments where the mind shifts into a totally different uh, perspective. Like the example I gave with the blue bucket at the beginning of the course. Or it may be moments when um, we may not have some, some shattering realization, but nonetheless we do somehow come to see ourselves or the world from a really unfamiliar perspective. Or we get a glimpse of something. Or we find um, a moment where the world becomes curiously uh, transparent. Or we don't feel so, so sort of divided within ourselves or cut off from our rapport with the natural world, for example. The Christians have got a, have got a very easy, a good language for this. They call it grace. And uh, moments of grace in which something somehow um, uh, enters into one's life that comes unbidden. <clears throat> and we spoke about this already, so I won't go into much detail, but um, in a tradition such as that of the Buddha, there is no room for grace. 
um, we're somehow thrown back more on our own resources. Or we're, in a way, asking ourselves to be, to be particularly honest with ourselves. But also to notice that when the chatter of the mind stills, uh, when uh, our habitual um, storyline begins to fade, when we, for whatever reason, find ourselves in a still, bright place, we also often find that, that those moments are, are peculiarly apt or appropriate to another way of seeing, another way of thinking, another way of being. But this other way is not coming from somewhere else, although it might feel like that, but really is a, a tapping into um, uh, the very fabric of what human life is capable of. And arguably our, our, our selfishness, our, our, our attachments, our opinions and so on, although they may give us a degree of comfort, or at least we think they do, they might also at the same time cut us off, sever us from the sources of our own inspiration. They kind of function, I think, as a kind of anesthetic. They, they dull and numb our intuitive capacities, for example, our, our creativity, our spontaneity. And these things are natural processes, and Zen is very good in its stories, as we've heard this week, um, at showing how um, once certain habits are broken, even momentarily or over a longer term, that releases um, a creative, spontaneous uh, responsiveness that's already there, already somehow imminent within what it means uh, to be human. So classically, uh, we find this both in early Buddhism, by which I mean Buddhism before it became Buddhism. In other words, the Dharma prior to its being organized into any particular orthodox school. We find the same idea there as we do also in Zen. Namely that um, moments of insight um, are followed by the cultivation of a path a way of life. Uh, this was already um, suggested in my last talk when I spoke about Elsa, embracing, letting go, seeing the stopping of reactivity, stopping. That's the moment perhaps where we have an opportunity to, to be otherwise, where we're no longer under the a grip or the imperatives of our reactions. They've momentarily died down or gone. And there's an openness, a clarity, a stillness that is not an end in itself, but is an opening, a door to a path. And this path is called, in early Buddhism, the Eightfold Path. 
And this path, this eightfold path, is described as a stream. In other words, it's, a, it, it's compared to a life that's in flow. Whereas reactivity is often compared to a state in which we are obstructed or blocked. You only have to think of the classical doctrine of the hindrances, the five hindrances. You know, attachment, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, doubt. And each Buddhist tradition has got its own list of obstacles and hindrances. But it's important to recognize that the language of hindrance or obstacle is also metaphorical. And it only makes sense within uh, the context of a wider metaphor. And that wider metaphor is that of a path that becomes obstructed or blocked. You can't have a blockage operating in the abstract. A blockage is something that prevents you from moving on. You're doing very well in your meditation, for example, and you feel as though you're in a certain flow, the practice is going well, we may not even be terribly self-conscious about what's happening, and then suddenly we're brought up short. We've been seized by an anxiety or a, a, a memory or a, a fear or a plan or just a random obsessive thought, and the effect of that is to stop that flow. It's to block in the mythology of early Buddhism, this uh, process is personified uh, symbolically in the figure of Mara. Mara means something like the demonic, the devil. It literally means the killer. In other words, that which actually literally stops us in our tracks. Um, Mara also is connected to the Sanskrit word murcha, death. And being under the grip of reactivity is, in a sense, living a sort of inner death. Nothing's moving anymore. There's a stagnation, a stuckness. And Mara is, um, in some early Buddhist texts, compared to a, uh, a figure called Namuchi. Namuchi is a figure in uh, ancient uh, Indian mythology who is regarded as the demon who causes the drought. And so in India, when the monsoon is building up and people are waiting for these long hoped-for rains, then Namuchi intervenes. And Namuchi holds back the water, which is what the word actually literally means. And then it takes Indra, the king of the gods, to strike Namuchi with his vajra, with his scepter, and then the rains are released. And I don't think it's accidental that um, the early canon uh, utilizes a great deal of water metaphors. The stream, holding back the water, all of these are suggestive of um, a value system, a vision of the world that values a flow and life over blockage 
and death. So if we put this into less metaphorical language, um, it describes a process in which we uh, seek to cultivate moments of insight, of clarity, of stillness, maybe even the experience of nirvana, you know, the stopping of this reactivity. But the important point is that that is not the goal of the practice. That is arguably where the practice begins. And in the classical structure of the, um, of the path, um, it's those moments that then allow you to enter the stream. And the stream of the path includes the way we see the world, the way we think about it, the way we make moral and ethical choices, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we work, the way we apply ourselves, the way we pay attention, and the way we focus ourselves. And that really is a, a shorthand for what we might in other contexts call a framework of value and meaning. And it's that framework that renders those experiences of stopping and seeing those shifts meaningful. They find their meaning through being lived out in, the, in, our own, in our philosophy, in our ethics, and in our contemplative practice, not on the cushion, but in the interactions that constitute our life in the world. And this whole process, um, each of the steps of this process, or each of the phases of this process, are described by the word samar, which is usually translated as right. So we have right view, right thought, right speech. And that's become so, um, so established in the English Buddhist lexicon that we just sort of take it for granted. That's, that must be what it means. It's not entirely incorrect. Um, it's, it's a legitimate interpretation, but actually it doesn't capture what the word samar literally means. Samar literally means complete or whole. In other words, um, this Eightfold Path is um, a life which is somehow integrated and whole. And the practice is not so much to do things in the right way as opposed to the wrong way, which frankly has a very strong moralistic overtone that's not, I think, there in the original language. But it's to see how we can live our life in a more integrated way. Remember the word integration comes from the Latin integer, which also means whole or complete. A whole number is an integer. An integrated life is one in which our thoughts, our views, our words, our acts, our work, 
um, are not, as it were, compartmentalized and, and split off from each other, fragmented, but are somehow integrated. They're somehow um, working together. One of the metaphors the Buddha uses, it's in the, in the Dhammapada, um, is he says that the, the wise person trains herself in the same way as a, an arrowsmith fashions an arrow. And if you think of that image, an arrow is made up of many different parts, which are quite distinct. The feathers, the shaft, the wood of the shaft, the metal of the tip. And it's by putting those elements together in the uh, skilled way of the arrowsmith that the arrow, all of those different parts, are integrated into a single object, an arrow, which can then be directed accurately to its target. So again, it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor of integration. It's a metaphor of, 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 of cultivating and developing a way of life that is focused, that is purposeful, and that is somehow held together in these different ways. That there's less and less of a sense of contradiction between, say, our work and our philosophy of life, or whatever it might be. So in terms of our, um, our theme, um, we had the experience but missed the meaning. The experience uh, in this model of practice is one that is then somehow realized or uh, completed, perhaps, by becoming integrated into a way of life, which is both ethical, philosophical, and contemplative. In the Zen tradition, at least in the school that Martin and I were taught in, in uh, Korea, um, our, the founder of our tradition uh, was a 14th century, was he 13th century, I can't remember, uh, but a, a, a Korean uh, son, a monk, called uh, Chinul. And Chinul um, presented his understanding of Zen practice as a sudden awakening followed by gradual practice. Maybe Martine mentioned this, I don't know. Um, but that too, I think, uh, gets to exactly the same point. Um, the, the, the sudden awakening is necessary, but not uh, sufficient. That it needs to be integrated in a gradual uh, practice. In other words, a practice that you develop and cultivate over the course of your life. And it's in that way uh, that um, uh, we've, the, 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 this, these experiences become uh, meaningful. Now, the next line in Eliot's poem um, reads as follows. Let's just say the whole thing. We had the experience but missed the meaning. And approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form. 
and approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form. So it's not as though there is a cutoff, that there's the experience and then there's the meaning. But the framework of meaning, in this example, the Eightfold Path, um, also transforms the experience. It somehow renders that experience more complete and more uh, full and realized. In some ways, I think what this is probably pointing to is that um, uh, th this notion of awakening or enlightenment is not actually complete until it has found a form in the world. Uh, there are other Buddhist uh, doctrines that suggest this very strongly too. A famous one is the Trikaya doctrine, the three bodies of the Buddha, but I'm not going to get into that. But if you look at the structure of the Eightfold Path, it starts with the way we see the world, then we think about it and make choices, then we speak, then we act, then we work. In other words, it moves from interiority into the actual embodiment of our, uh, our experience in work, livelihood itself, what we do to um, survive, what we do to make a living, what we do to contribute to our society. So there's a, there's a very clear progression from the inner experience into its outward or external embodiment. And I think this also is uh, equally visible in the example I gave earlier about the artists that we visited uh, in Korea. Um, how you start in a, in a meditative frame of stillness and clarity and then you make the mark on the piece of paper. And at some point, you produce a work that seems to be of a whole with your initial experiential starting point. And that's the one you put to one side. And we can extend that analogy through pretty much every form of human action. So what this points to is that um, it's probably not um, enough to use words like awakening or enlightenment just to refer to uh, private subjective experiences. That is absolutely necessary, but it's not enough. And in this idea of the path, the awakening is only, as it were, realized when it has found voice or form or embodiment in the world of others, that it's become expressed, uh, hopefully, in a compassionate, in a caring way, that it's been realized. Um, the same thing I feel is there in the idea of, um, of, the, um, uh, of these tasks, that in a sense, the, the, the aim of this awakening uh, is to cultivate a way of life, the fourth task. Um, awakening is therefore understood much more as a process that starts in our deepest interiority, in our deepest questions, 
and finds its uh, form, its completion in the world. But this is not, as it were, a simple linear A to Z kind of line. Um, it may be more helpful to think of it as a, as a positive feedback loop in other words, if we look at this uh, fourfold task, embracing the condition we're in, letting go of reactivity, stopping, experiencing moments in which reactivity stops, and then thinking, saying, doing, acting in the world, in such a way that that creates a, a kind of ethical and uh, a purposeful foundation for our practice of meditation, of mindfulness, of concentration. Remember the Eightfold Path concludes with mindfulness and samadhi. But again, these I don't think are the end of the path. But it's with mindfulness and concentration that's been somehow supported by this process that we can then turn our attention perhaps a little bit more clearly, a little bit more with more focus on the condition we find ourselves in right now. In other words, life. We're back to embracing life. <coughs> We've come back to the first task, but hopefully at a slightly different pitch. And then the process continues. And, and this is a, a positive feedback loop. And in thinking of the path in this way, we get out of the idea of thinking of stages of enlightenment and, and insight and so on, these rather schematic, linear pictures that suggest a kind of ever-increasing gradation of, 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 of perfection. Uh, surely what matters in terms of practice is not you know, our final destination as a Buddha, or whatever it might be, but how we respond to life as it presents itself to us in this moment, and the next moment, and the next moment, and tomorrow and the next day. Each, each moment is a challenge to be a Buddha, to be more awake rather than simply acting according to the imperatives of our conditioning and reactivity. And one of the, and again, if we flash back now here to a, 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 the Christian tradition, um, a phrase that I've always been struck by in the Gospels is um, the phrase, by their fruits you shall know them. By their, by their fruits you shall know them. Um, and to me that points to the fact that no matter how holy or spiritual or realized a person may be in their deepest interiority, in a way that's kind of meaningless. It's only when they act, do something, say something, embody themselves in the world, in other words, by a fruit of their insight, are we able to know them? Uh, not just by their saying, hey, I'm enlightened. Yeah, okay, so, 
say something, do something, show me, uh, you know, demonstrate this in, in form, in, in your body, in, in a creation, in a work of art. I, f I have a feeling that this is again touching on the same broad idea. And another consequence of this uh, entering this stream uh, of living what may be a more integrated life um, is that one becomes aparapachaya in Pali, which means independent of others, no longer dependent upon the authority of others. Uh, again, this is a term that repeats quite a lot in early Buddhist discourses, but not an idea that's much proclaimed in Orthodox Buddhism. After all, religions are a little bit wary of people who uh, are independent of their authority. But this term is, I think, probably a very early one. Uh, and it suggests that um, as we come to live in this way, uh, whether it be through our Zen practice or through the practice of mindfulness, whether we're Buddhists or Christians or whatever, um, it also leads to a greater confidence in our own ability to um, be self-reliant, to be autonomous, to individuate in the Jungian sense. In other words, to differentiate ourselves from the collective norms of the society to become ourselves. And rather than thinking of Buddhism as preaching a doctrine of no self, which I think is, a, is completely not the case, um, it's rather that the Buddha thought of the self as like a work in progress. Each of us is a work in progress. Each of us is, in a sense, practicing with the raw materials of our body, our feelings, our minds, our inclinations, our perceptions, our consciousness. That is the raw material of our practice, much in the same way that clay and bronze are the raw materials of the sculptor. And so the idea of not-self is that uh, None of these things, none of these materials are me or mine in any intrinsic sense, but that means that they are uh, capable of being transformed, molded, shaped, created in a way that allows us to uh, individuate, uh, to become, as it were, truer to our deepest concerns and questions and values. And we can perhaps end with the Example of uh, Chao Chu um, walking out when Nan Xuan says, tells him the story about having killed the cat. Nan Xuan puts his sandals on his head, turns around, and walks out the door. Now, whatever that might mean, and I don't pretend to know, um, what it does point to is that this is a highly uh, autonomous and independent act. He, he's not aping some Zen uh, precedent. At least I hope he's not. Uh, I take that story to mean, and as I do many of these Zen stories, many of the responses, whether they be in gestures or whether they be in words, uh, in these classical koans, are basically examples of someone finding his or her own voice. 
And that, I feel, is equally the case in the early uh, Buddhist tradition. The Buddha's not concerned with creating a community of clones. He's concerned with a co creating a community of self-creating uh, persons who are independent of others in their understanding and in their practice. This doesn't mean that they don't refer to anybody else. They're not you know, narcissistic Western individualists. But um, it means that they are finding authority in themselves. They're becoming, as that famous last or nearly last passage about the Buddha's life says, they're becoming islands or lamps to themselves. So let's stop here. A few minutes, if you'd like to um, comment or ask a question, please do. Okay, I'm off the hook. Thank you. <laughs> so we'll meet back here at quarter to nine, and we'll have our last um, evening uh, bowing and sit. Um, yeah, one important point. If you miss the morning sitting for any reason, Please try and be here by 7.25, where one of the coordinators will give the closing talk, which contains important practical information. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.